arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. While the idea of establishing space may seem abstract, it's often vital for telling a story. In this famous sequence from North by Northwest, Hitchcock spends several minutes setting the scene in the flat open fields. Then, when the plane arrives and starts shooting at Cary Grant, this amplifies the drama, as we know he has nowhere to find cover. Another example of establishing space occurs in his early film, Young and Innocent. In the finale, a young girl searches for a murderer, Haven't you seen anyone with a twitch yet? about whom all she knows is that he has a twitchy eye. At that moment, right on the line of dialogue, put the camera in the highest position above the hotel lounge. By placing the camera high above the hotel, Hitchcock emphasizes how hopeless this task is amongst the packed ballroom. And I dollied the camera down. Through the dancers, up to the dance band, through the band, right to the drummer, close up of the drummer, until his eyes filled the screen. And then the eyes did that. So while the long shot establishes space, the close up is often useful for giving us important information. Which brings us to another of Hitchcock's most important rules. Ah, here she is. Now for my toast which was that the size of the image in the frame is proportional to its importance to the story at that time. Primarily, of course, a close-up lets the audience know that an object is about to become important to the plot. Hitchcock understood that successful storytelling requires the audience to engage with the characters on an emotional level. I understand how you feel. The close-ups of hands, because they are a very economical way to show emotion. The rule, which unites all his close-ups, is that they express just a single idea, simply convey to the audience. The sinister character coming into close-up has become something of a cliché, as has the poisoned coffee moving around the room. But the reasons these may seem unoriginal is because Alfred Hitchcock gave us this visual language. So today we pay tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, the master of storytelling. Maddie makes it through the night with the realization that someone is harassing her on the phone. She heard a distant church bell and a hissing on the line. Immediately, her husband is suspect, and she leaves a nasty voicemail with him. But why the church bell? She thinks of Raymond, the guy with the ponytail, as the tree branches scrape against the house. He is weird enough to harass her. The next day she recovers and becomes friendly with McCabe. Then she accepts an invitation by McCabe to go to a country dance. I think that whenever we're away from home we lose security. Jim Morrison had it right when he sang that people are strange when you're a stranger. There's more to McCabe, however, and when she finally finds out about McCabe she freaks out. 
Let's see if Maddie can relax, or maybe fate will go in a different direction. Episode 2 of Exchange House by Robert P. Fitton starts now. Chapter 8 She had wound the dresser alarm clock after supper, testing the metal alarm bells. The steady clapper assured her a quick awakening once the alarm was set. Now, three minutes after the mantel clock downstairs had chimed once at 11.30, she held the edges of a paperback about kings and the royal court set in France during the 18th century. She stared at the alarm clock's glass face. Maybe its ticking was keeping her awake. More than likely, the crushed rose on the adjacent bath's wicker wastebasket had her mind racing. For three hours, she had thought about calling John's condo or maybe his company voicemail. The thought of him actually here in Maine annoyed her, but for him to sneak a rose onto her bed and make no appearance confused and petrified her. She closed the book, remembering that she had stopped on page 15 a half an hour ago, and she reached toward the flowered glass globe lamp on the bedside table. Her eyes stung and she longed for sleep. She twisted the rough metal cast knob. She closed her eyes and fell back onto the inflated goose-feathered pillow. Instant darkness enveloped the room. She closed her eyes and fell back into the inflated goose-feathered pillow. She had the sensation of spinning, a prelude to sleep, and the threat of another phone call, a John pulling up in his sports car, was nixed by taxing exhaustion. The clock's poignant tick and push of gentle wind through one of the window casings added a continual presence to her clogged thoughts. Her eyes adjusted to the darkness, but the moon's former brightness failed to evidence itself around the drawn shades. Perhaps a momentary cloud had taken over the lunar dominance of the night sky, or maybe something stronger like a storm had moved into the mid-coastal area. The sinewy outlines of bedroom wallpaper and the silhouetted furniture pieces were enlarged in mysterious shadows. Alone upstairs in a bed, in a little house seven miles from town, she turned and pulled up the heavy quilt over her shoulders, and then sunk her head into the thick pillow. Lying on her side, only exaggerated her fears. The phone's escalating ring from downstairs sent the quilt flying over her stomach. She sat up and awaited the next burst. A few seconds passed. She inched the quilt upward again and waited, but the phone never rang. The window glass rattled intermittently in the wind. She listened closer, perched on the bed, and she heard a faint scraping. She rolled from the bed, and on her hands and knees crawled across the rug to the side window. She slowly pulled back the shade and gazed over a muted gray representation of the side grounds and the cliffs beyond. A thickened fog glowed over the bay and crept in in clumps over the escarpment. The marshes and river were barely visible, yet the rotating lighthouse beacon sliced the moving fog at regular intervals. The scratching was perhaps the attempt of an animal trying to enter the house before winter. She stood for a moment, debating whether to turn on the hurricane lamp, but opted to cross the room quietly. As she passed through the sweet jasmine air in the tub room, she knew, by her own secretive movements, she had given tacit consent to the possibility of another human being on the property. At the top of the staircase, the phone was partially visible on the small table. Shaken, at the frightening prospect of another round of unwarranted ringing, she swallowed once and tilted her head. The chafing grew louder and consistent near the side window. 
She placed her hands instinctively against her ribs and rocked like an engine out of control. Crouching, she held the banister and slid it behind her as she alternately gazed at the phone receiver, snugly in place. When she was able to view the kitchen windows, Maddie assumed a stationary position behind the banister and clutched the spindles with both hands. Outside the smudged window glass, tree branches danced in the wind. She nodded her head and stood, again looking at the phone as she completed her trek down the staircase. Her chin tilted up, she stepped under the cooler floorboards and marched toward the window. She hesitated a couple yards back from the casing, but forged forward with a nagging trepidation and pressed her face against the glass. The oak tree's hefty appendage, a clump of five tiny twigs, scratched against the clapboards at each wind gust. Maddie exhaled several times, her face dotted with perspiration beads. She moved quickly along the wall to the door, turned the deadbolt and thrust open the door, and the wind burst into the house. Pushing the screen door, she trounced onto the porch, her nightie rippling in the salty breeze. She approached the porch. The leafy annoyance was now on full display. She climbed onto the balustrade and twisted the branch back at least a foot away from the clapboards. She leaned on the railing as a white glow now obscured most of the cliffs and bay. Patches of fog filtered through the trees near the garage, hiding the maintenance shed and the road leading from the property. She rechecked her handiwork, the bent branch now away from the clapboards, and she assured herself she could now sleep. Once back inside, she dropped the hook lock into the screen door eyelet and forced the metal deadbolt back in place. Unconsciously, she drifted toward the kitchen and slid the open drawer next to the stove. She grasped the wooden handle of a stainless paring knife she had used to carve an orange earlier, left the drawer open, and retraced her steps across the kitchen, but veered toward the telephone table. A quick click of the table lamp switch created a diminished light under the red metal shade, rimming the floor and the plaster ceiling with a projected luminescence. Maddie dialed John's voicemail exchange listened to a series of complicated instructions, and had to bypass the usual touch-tone passageway to her estranged husband's private mailbox. She used the voice activation option. The line rang, and standing far away in Maine along a fog-banked coast, Maddie heard John's deliberate voice through the receiver. She cleared her throat and prepared to speak. The tone sounded, and Maddie tightened her lips. I know you can hear this, John. Whenever you pick this up and wherever you are, I don't know how you put that rose on my pillow, but if it happens again, or if I see you within a hundred miles of where I am, I'm calling the cops, and I'll get my attorney. I think I'll call my attorney anyways. You're out of my life. Get that through your head. Get lost, John. She held the receiver in her hand, lowered it to the hook, and inputted the message into a digital processor 3,000 miles away. The paring knife still in her hand, Maddie rounded the banister with a slight smile, but she was unsure about the rose, and convinced herself as she climbed the stair runner, she would at a minimum talk to McCabe, depending on how she felt in the morning, or go directly to the police. Chapter 9 She awoke to sunshine bordering the pale yellow shades. A sliver of light swept past the dresser and the alarm clock's glass face. Eight hours of uninterrupted sleep after the mysterious phone call and the scraping outside left her deeply relaxed. By now, she thought, pulling up the quill to her chin as the cool air tingled her nose, John may have heard the terse late-night message. 
She wanted to call the police. The yellow rose in the small bathroom's white wicker basket seemed too much of a coincidence. Brightening sunlight moved up the stairs beyond the white ceramic tub and the outside banister. She put on her robe, picked the paring knife off the mattress, and headed downstairs. Outside the reading room window, beyond the farmer's porch supports, color erupted in the thicket ahead. Before she made breakfast, she located the heater switch and turned on the old burner's thermostat past 70. The burner in the cellar kicked in as she stepped into her fluffy slippers. At the side window, she checked her rough pruning job on the oak branch, smiled and turned to the kitchen. The old burner's distinct industrial odor circulated within the warm air, pushing through the silver floor vent slits. Perk coffee soon masked the oily odor. The coffee steam massaged her face and the caffeine focused her thoughts as she nibbled on wheat toast and dabbed on some raspberry jam. With the fog gone, the clear, bright sun presented her with an optimistic outlook. She put the toast corner between her two front teeth and reached for the deadbolt, but had trouble turning it. She set the coffee cup on the side table and used both hands to wrench the bolt out of the casing. Above the open door, a tarnished metal hook dangled from the screen door's eye hook but the brass clamps around the deadbolt were loose and the white paint marred. Halfway across the reading room, the receiver shook and a quick ring reverberated against the walls. Maddie tightened her lips and moved directly toward the phone. She hated the old-fashioned ring. Hello. Maddie, this is Dan McCabe. I wanted to apologize for that abrupt way I left you out here yesterday. I've had some personal problems lately and was taken off guard. And I should have, and I do accept your dinner offer, said Maddie quickly. She was not sure whether she had accepted McCabe's offer because she needed protection or because she genuinely wanted to know him better. Maybe both feelings were true. Your car is still being worked on. They should have it done this afternoon. Can I bring you anywhere this morning? Yes, the police station. What? McCabe, there was a yellow rose on my pillow last night. My husband's signature. He must be around somewhere, and the lock has been tampered with out front. Well, I'm at my office. I'll be right out there. Maddie looked at her watch again as she paced the porch. Attempts to reach McCabe at his office had proved fruitless, and she finally left a message on his voicemail. He was overdue by an hour. Dressed in jeans, a blue flannel shirt, and a light vest, she walked out toward the cliffs. A distant engine hummed down the lane. McCabe's black and silver truck zoomed over the hill and raised dust along the maintenance shed. He parked diagonally between the garage and the porch and then popped out of the truck. He wore his denim jacket and his silver sunglasses reflected the foliage. Are you all right, Maddie? he asked as he approached. Yeah. He removed his glasses as they moved up the porch stairs. Again, I had something pending yesterday, legal matters, a lot on my mind. I'm sorry. She nodded as he pulled open the screen door and inspected the deadbolt. Well, that's loose, that's for sure. I thought so. He took a screwdriver from his back pocket, as if he was always prepared for tightening screws, and lined up the small weathered brass Phillips screws. A few quick twists and the clamps were back in place. McCabe spoke as he slid the bolt. Now, I think this is normal usage. You may have inadvertently loosened this when you put the bolt back in place last night. No, the paint is scraped. McCabe smiled brusquely. 
Well, keep using that door, you get scuffs. Look, Maddie, I know you're all alone out here. Maybe last night was a little unsettling for you. Why was there a rose on my bed? Well, I've talked to Dennis Jacobson. Who's Dennis Jacobson? Asked Maddie, tapping her fingers along her jeans. A cop I know. We had a cleaning lady come out here Tuesday. Jake is talking to her this morning. She stocks the foods and cleans up everything. She might have put that rose on the pillow. Why a yellow rose? John always gave me yellow roses. I left a message on his voicemail. Listen, I can feel it. He's around here, McCabe. He's trying to scare me. Revenge for the separation. You don't understand. He plays to win. This man is a competitor. He can't stand losing. McCabe nodded as they drifted into the house's warmer air. Ah, I see you found the heater. Well, at least that's working all right. Maddie smiled. She liked this guy. She liked his smile and something about his deep brown eyes set under his wide brow that provided security. And she needed security right now. Oh, with my luck, the burner will go out. McCabe grinned. You know what? Let me check the oil level in the tanks. I haven't checked it since last spring. He walked deliberately across the vinyl floor to the cellar door near the outside window where the branches had scraped against the clapboards. Maddie folded her arms across her vest and followed him, taking a position at the top of the darkened cellar stairs. She heard the furnace churning. She called down the stairs. You must see a lot of people come through here, McCabe. Yeah, I wish I owned the house myself, Maddie, he said, his voice muffled by the stone cellar walls. He jarred something and banged on metal. Looks good until November, and then I'll get the old man out here. She moved down the stairs. A dirty side window, woven with spider webs, was cracked open. Any intruder could enter through the basement. McCabe, there really should be a lock on this window. McCabe did not answer as he rattled the bulkhead doors. I hear you, Maddie. A few seconds later, his work boots scraped the dirt floor and he wiped away a cobweb as he started back up the stairs. He looked as if he had indigestion. You okay? she asked. Sure. He stared at the cellar door as he climbed the stairs but stopped at the side window. That thing should be locked too. Maddie, this is Maine. Got a few calls out here last night, McCabe, and it sent every little hair of my head standing on end. Well, that must have been quite a sight, he said as he scrutinized the door and grinned. She was taken aback by the remark from a man she had met less than 24 hours ago. Yet she chuckled and watched his powerful hand remove a chrome tape measure from his pocket. He shut the door and pulled the yellow tape from its spring enclosure, measuring out exactly seven inches. I'll install the locks for you probably today. Thank you. What about the phone calls? McCabe put the tape back in his coat pocket and turned with a gleam in his eye. Let me guess, maybe somebody is selling magazine subscriptions to work their way through college. She pushed her upper teeth over her bottom lip and then fully smiled. Listen, I'm serious, McCabe. When I picked that up last night, I heard this chiming, not loud, and a hiss. McCabe's wide brow furrowed like a crevice in the earth. The only thing that chimes in this town is the Congregational Church on the way out of town, or into town, depending on which way you're going. Really? Perhaps the police should station somebody or assign them near that church out there. I'm not going to put up with annoying calls. I don't think they'll do that, Maddie. He looked out the kitchen window. It looks like it's going to be a nice day. It's supposed to warm up. That's what you wanted, isn't it? A bright fall day in New England?
You seem to have this mental file on me, McCabe. My likes, my dislikes, pieced together with what the Rialto gave you. McCabe pushed his lips out and nodded. Then he pointed slowly. You analyze too much. It must come with being an artist. Speaking of which, where are my supplies? She brushed against his denim coat as she, too, leaned toward the window. I want to paint the bay and the marshes. Estuary, where the salt and the fresh water meet. Well, you can inundate me with your technicalities, McCabe, geological periods and the like, but the scene is aesthetically still the same, and the sketching, it just doesn't cut it. McCabe stared at her sketch of him, the sheet now balanced on the fireplace mantle. He raised his left brow. No, I guess it doesn't. Maddie turned, slightly embarrassed, that he had seen the forceful rendering of his face and shoulders. Impressed? McCabe moved into the reading room, glanced toward her, and then back at the sketch. How in the hell did you do that? Maddie followed his footsteps. And a piece of charcoal. No, I mean, I wasn't even here. And you took your thoughts and transcribed them onto that parchment. That's what I do. She was next to him again and liked being with him. You go to college, McCabe? He smiled, still looking at the charcoal, and spoke as he slowly turned toward her. What is that, a prerequisite for having dinner with you? Now she twisted her lips and blurted out a silly laugh. Oh, yes, of course, a college man. Isn't that in my Rialto resume? McCabe put his index finger to his temple and nodded. Yes, it was. Page four, paragraph two. Right under first dates after marital separation. Oh, you're so clever, McCabe. She pushed her palms against her hips and strewn with legalese facts and figures. Did you say you were a lawyer in the service? I was, but I never pursued it in civilian life. Two different realms, military and civilian law. But to answer your question, I do have a degree. Maddie grinned. In what? Well, after I flunked out of art school, let's see, I should have said degrees. The master's in physics really hasn't been useful, so I got a few other minor degrees. Let me guess, business, probably in the service or near where you were stationed. Very good. University of Texas, right outside the base. Business? Monkey business. Listen, we have to check on your car. You know, I can't believe the kind of vehicles those rental people send out. He paused again at the mantle and back to the front door as he looked at the deadbolt again. McCabe, he pushed the clamps around and then turned. McCabe, I want to know how a yellow rose ended up on my pillow. It would have to be Mrs. Simmons. McCabe, you see, I don't have a car. You can talk to her, Maddie. Look, I feel responsible that you don't have a car. My day is pretty much clear, except for the usual disruptions that accompany managing property. Thank you. Let me get my pocketbook. He nodded, and she bounded down the stairs. Having McCabe chauffeur her around town was a pleasant prospect, even exciting. His confidence and sharpness made her feel safe. She left her pocketbook behind, but placed her wallet inside a blue fanny pack as she hurried back to him. No pocketbook? Don't tell me it was stolen. She turned her back to him. Fanny pack. Yup. His dark eyes caught hers for a second, and they walked together toward the door. She went by him onto the porch and was about to pull her key from her jeans pocket, but he had already inserted his master key and secured the house. His hand pressed against her back as he ushered her across the gray floorboards and down the steps. He slowed and gave the house a second look as they continued toward the truck. 
She, too, turned back to the beige clapboard facade and the maroon shutters. He smacked his lips and then headed for the passenger side door. Maddie produced a wide smile as the cool wind gust pushed against her flannel shirt sleeves. He opened the truck door, closing it solidly once she was inside. She watched him march around the hood. You play cards? he asked when he was behind the wheel. No, not really. How about country? He started the truck, and the speakers resonated with a cutting steel guitar. You like country? And if I don't? McCabe spun the truck around, breezing by the garage toward the maintenance shed. He gripped his cigarette pack on the seat, but did not pull out a cigarette. Maddie studied the clean ashtray in the spotless interior. Oh, you will. McCabe, you're starting to make me think that you're inside my head. Who, me? He started down the narrow, dirt-lane slope. I want to tell you one thing about me, since we're officially going to Brisky Whiskies. Oh, and what's that? I can hardly wait to hear this one. McCabe grinned and they moved under the bright leaves. She continued to smile and peer out the window at the stone wall beyond the trees across the hill. I am good at what I do. Chapter 10 At Belson's garage, she opted to stay outside. From the base, a pneumatic wrench of spinning hurt her ears, and she stepped onto the sidewalk. Through the window, McCabe leaned over the red rental's open hood and talked with the mechanics. But she did not see Raymond Snowden. Belson himself, stomach protruding through his greasy tan striped work shirt, wiped his hands with a rag and waddled over to the action. When McCabe used his hands to illustrate his points, Maddie sensed that the car would not be ready. He puffed his cheeks, blowing the air out slowly, and stroked his chin. Then he nodded and started outside. When? asked Maddie, crossing her arms. You need a coat or something? How about a warm truck cab? McCabe glanced inside. They need to get brake pads, and there's something wrong with the transmission. Maddie, you're lucky you even got up here. When? Maybe tomorrow. Listen, I have to talk to the rental car company. Why don't you go over to the diner, and I'll meet you over there. She visualized Raymond Snowden, bruised upper eye and ponytailed hair. You'll be right over? Yeah, he said, holding her forearm. Give me ten minutes. You can have Rita order me the usual if you want. The usual? McCabe leaned toward her, his dark eyes only inches away, and she didn't mind. Order it and you'll find out what it is. Oh, I plan to. Maddie wandered down the sidewalk. The assortment of garage noises faded as she approached the yellow diner. McCabe must have seen the spring in her step. Just having him around after last night provided her with a protected bubble, and being seen with him around town might dissuade any potential intruder. The diner's metal exhaust fan sent breakfast cooking and fresh coffee into the outside air. Even with two slices of toast back at the house, Maddie's stomach growled and she decided to order some Danish and not worry about her weight. She hadn't worked out for three days. Preble was at the counter when she pushed open the aluminum door. He turned and waved. Maddie moved closer. Well, good morning, Preb, she said boldly. Maddie, how are things out at the point? Maddie paused, imagining the phone ringing and the branches scratching against the clapboards. I feel on vacation, Preb smiled, nodding as he sipped his coffee. An elderly husband and wife occupied the end booth. She did not see Raymond Snowden at the diner. Hey, I talked to my wife last night. Abby's been uh, on her nature walks out there at the point for 25 years. She said give her a call if you wanted a guided tour. 
Really? I do want to hike the area. Preb clicked a small red pen and wrote his number across the napkin next to his fork. He clicked the pen again, put it into the vinyl holder in his shirt pocket, and handed the napkin to her. Call any time. We never close. Maddie smiled and folded the napkin. She unzipped the fanny pack and tucked the napkin inside as the waitress swiped a sponge over the side booth's scratch-gray tabletop. You're welcome to join us here at the counter. Oh, thanks. I'm meeting McCabe in a few minutes. Preb's half-shaven face tightened and he pushed his lips across his face. He asked you? Well, my car's being worked on. He's my ride. Preb nodded, opening his mouth several times as if he were going to say something. Okay, you call Abby, really. She wants to give you a tour of the graveyard. Sounds spooky, she said, moving sideways past the cigarette machine. Three weeks to Halloween, said Preb, lifting his coffee cup. He turned to the man next to him and said something, then he looked back as she headed toward the booth. The pink uniform waitress, dyed brown hair, pulled into a bun, set down the paper placemat, depicting the diner in black ink. Unconsciously, she picked a napkin containing the food utensils from a side tray. Her uniform fit a bit too snugly. Excuse me, are you Rita? She stared at Maddie and began moving again like a computer recognizing a command. Yeah, have a seat, honey. You're staying out at the Fairbanks house. Yes, I'm Maddie Summers. Rita Curtis. Coffee? Sure, said Maddie as she slid across the cold red vinyl booth. McCabe told me to order the usual for him. Rita wiped the table again with a half-smile she turned. Well, McCabe always knows what he wants. Maddie looked out the window. McCabe was still inside the garage. Further down Main Street, the buildings bent around the road. She would have McCabe bring her out to the congregational church so she could see for herself where that phone call might have been placed. Preb said something back at the counter. Maddie stepped from the booth as Rita brought over a copper-toned plastic carafe, a shiny cup, and a saucer. Leaving so soon? I have to ask Preb a question. Preb laughed at a joke that his partner was telling him, cleared his throat, and drank some more coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah. I get it, I get it. He glanced at Maddie and turned on the stool. Maddie, Preb, you should know the answer to this. Is there a payphone located by the church outside of town at the bend? Nope. Why, you particular where you make your calls? No, I got a crank call at the house, and there was some chiming in the background. Preb turned to his partner. The overweight man in the red baseball cap raised his index fingers. Well, it doesn't mean it was from this town. Probably a wrong number, said Preb, stretching the skin around his blue eyes as he spoke. You know, the phone company gets more wrong numbers than people think they're being harassed. Not that you weren't. Or maybe it was a cell phone. You know, that's true. Maybe it was a fluke. Hey, Maddie, you call me if that happens again. I'll track the thing down. We have the ability to set up trace calls. Maddie patted his jacket. I will. That place is very isolated. Thanks, Preb. No problem. Maddie moved back to the booth and poured the coffee. The bitter taste coated her mouth. Squinting, she peered out the window again. McCabe's denim coat stuck out of the garage door. She couldn't tell whether he was on the phone or talking to someone inside. He turned, snuffed out his cigarette on the cement, and hiked toward the diner. Reader appeared with a massive food tray. Okay, we have four eggs over light, bacon crisp, sausage dry, side order, four slices of wheat toast, raspberry jam on the side in the margarine, Kellogg's cornflakes with cream and strawberries, a glass of fresh orange juice, nothing watered down, nothing artificial. 
Maddie propped her elbows on the table and held the coffee cup in her hand. You've got to be kidding. She looked at the wide-shouldered McCabe nearing the diner ramp. And a coffee light, two sugars, and the morning paper. That, sweetheart, is the usual. Would take me two days to eat this. McCabe entered the restaurant, said something to Preb, and waved at another guy in the booth. He smiled when he saw Maddie. I see Reader is right on top of things this morning. Reader is always on top of things, McCabe, said the waitress, balancing the pencil between her teeth as she unloaded McCabe's order. What are you going to have, honey? Maddie half smiled and gulped. I'll have coffee light, two sugars. I don't know if you have any bagels. Do you have Danish? Apple, cherry, raspberry, and lemon. Cherry. How many do you want? McCabe will eat the rest when you don't finish. I'm sure of it. Is that a question, or shall I assume? Get the lady a Danish, said McCabe as he hung up his denim coat and sat down. Rita saluted. Yes, sir. Do we eat this breakfast every morning, McCabe? asked Maddie. I was going to ask you the same thing, said McCabe. His green flannel shirt filled the booth. Yes, I eat this breakfast every morning. And you don't put on weight? Should I? he asked, heaving the salt and then the pepper on the eggs. Artery cloggers. I've found, Maddie, that people who worry about every study that's in the morning paper are usually the ones who get sick. He shoveled the egg yolk onto his fork. May I? You may. Now, he said, spreading back the Portland paper. Another day, same mess. You mean there's nothing about the flour on my pillow and the crank call? McCabe smiled as he snapped the bacon with his side teeth. I'll track down Mrs. Simmons and solve that one. We have to get some additional hardware for your doors. Broken? She sipped the coffee and pressed her lips. I thought the front was loose. Listen, I'm going to make you feel so secure out there you'll be ready to sleep with the windows open. Maddie grinned and watched him devour the meal. Before her Danish was served, McCabe had decimated the eggs, gnawed three slices of toast, and was into the cereal. She never even saw the sausage. And you think my supplies might be here today? We'll check the P.O., and by tomorrow I'm sure Belson's will have your car fixed. Good, I thought I'd call Mrs. Preble. Preb said she might show me the property near the graveyard. Rita returned with a tiny Danish and cleared McCabe's plates from the table. He sipped the coffee and ran his fingers across the newspaper's report of stocks and mutual funds. Good idea. Abby is an avid hiker. McCabe, I thought you'd be in the sports section being so athletic. McCabe peered up. Oh? I mean, you work hard. She nervously put her lips to the cup. You were a lawyer, that's right. Well, that was 15 years ago in the service. Were you good as a defender? I prosecuted. Yeah, I was good. Listen, have you ever danced to country music? Can't say that I have. Well, second-hand Andy has a few outfits. We'll stop by there after the post office. Maddie studied his thick black hair, but noticed a tension below his ears as he constantly ground his jaw. Something electric pervaded the man's being. He threw himself seriously into everything he did, and on some level, even though she moved steadily through life at a slower, gentler pace, she was drawn to his dynamic personality. She could see it in his eyes, as if his brain cells constantly fired, and then his mind planned and activated. His body required prodigious amounts of food, and he was probably still hungry. McCabe backed the truck onto Main Street, but as they moved forward, Raymond Snowden, wearing a faded army jacket and smoking a stogie, walked out of the liquor store at the corner of Birch Ave. He carried a small bag propped under his right shoulder. Man, he's starting early.
Now I know why it's taking so long to fix your car. Maddie stared across the street and then leaned back so McCabe's large frame blocked Raymond's view. That man stole my booth yesterday. McCabe looked to his left as they passed and then focused on the mirror. Little maggot, did he swear at you or anything? No, he walked right in front of me and deliberately took that booth in back of where we were sitting this morning. Maddie turned and looked out the rear window. Raymond watched the truck over his shoulder. You tell me if he bothers you, Maddie. I'll set the boy straight. I heard somebody popped him a couple nights ago. See, when Raymond really gets buzzed, he's brutal. Doesn't let up. He's an obnoxious little son of a bitch. Maddie nodded. She concentrated on Raymond's blue swollen eye and toothless smile. At least she had McCabe in her corner should Raymond try anything again. Now she wondered if Raymond had gotten drunk last night and rang the house. She might have upset him on some level, and he was seeking revenge. Maybe he's calling the house. Nah, Raymond is a nobody. Is he violent? What? Is Raymond violent? No, he's belligerent. I wouldn't call him violent. He's a damn stooge is what he is. Maddie looked back one more time. She worried about the rental as Raymond crossed Main Street toward Belson's. As an expert mechanic, he could easily tamper with the brakes, the steering, or a hundred other things. Anyone racing to occupy a booth as if he were in a cavalry charge could not be the nicest person. McCabe's powerful hands gripped the wheel and brought the truck over the rough pavement. She slumped on the bench seat and smiled hesitantly as she assured herself things would be all right. Chapter 11 The cardboard-covered canvases were wedged between her collapsed easel, wrapped in brown packing paper, and three cardboard boxes of paints and brushes bounced inside McCabe's truck bed. She smiled as they climbed the lane hill toward the maintenance shed, knowing her plans to paint the bay and the foreground back to the cliffs would soon come to fruition. Another box, white and wrapped with a shiny green ribbon, slid around the truck body when McCabe accelerated and braked. Maddie was slightly embarrassed back at second-hand Annie's when McCabe picked out a red checkered and white fabric, looking more like a tablecloth than a blouse and a short brown leather skirt and matching boots. The clerk had thrown in the navy kerchief and told them both they were to enjoy their night dancing. The blue sky mixed with a mass of yellow leaves within the tall pines terraced along the lane to the hilltop. The house's upper gable and brilliant green lawn came into view through the branches. She had the urge to play volleyball or maybe plan a barbecue. At the maintenance shed, the window mirrored the leaves again and the truck as they passed. She tightened her face when she failed to see the two lawnmower blades leaned against the inside window casing. McCabe, stop. What? What is it? The truck slid to a stop on the dirt. I know there were two mower blades in that window and now they're gone. McCabe's head panned right. He shifted the truck into neutral, pushed the emergency brake and left it running. Maddie got out and followed him to the shed door. She shuffled through the leaves and stretched her neck so she could see the window without the reflection. The blades were gone. McCabe unlocked the garage door and thrust it upward. The musty shed was packed with a sit-down mower, rakes, and an assortment of tools. Who does the lawn here, McCabe? Stanley Simmons, a husband of the lady who cleans my properties. His eyes were fixed on the windowsill and his silence bothered her. He stepped over some used paint cans. The paint had dripped over the labels and matched the house's off-yellow tint. Quickly, he removed his denim coat and handed it to her. 
She slowly ran her fingers over the soft cotton as he fell to the floor as if he were going to begin a push-up routine. He lifted the sit-down mower as lower guard, wiggled something below, and then shook his head. The pressure tensed in his lower forearm muscles, and with the finesse of a gymnast, he jumped up. Okay, the blades aren't here. I'll call Stanley. I don't like this, said Maddie, still draping his coat over her arm as they moved back inside. McCabe pulled down the overhead door, twisted the handle, and snapped it in place. I don't like a rose on my pillow. I don't like being out here, miles from town, with sharp mower blades disappearing from the maintenance shed. What kind of a man is this Stanley Simmons? Oh, he's okay. McCabe waved his hand through the air and crunched his face as he scanned the grounds. He rounded the truck. She sat in the front seat, his coat over her jeans, and they shut the truck doors in unison. He glided ahead toward the cliffs and the ocean beyond and stopped next to the front walk. Maddie, no one has access to that shed except for Simmons and myself. Maddie sat silently as McCabe cut the engine and retreated to the truck bed. He lifted out the canvases, balanced them up the walk, and set the cardboard against the porch support. He had the boxes unloaded in two trips. She slowly exited the cab, closing the door with her buttocks. McCabe had already opened up the house and brought the canvases inside as she carried his coat up the front walk. He picked up the other boxes without looking at her. It seemed steeped in thought as he effortlessly shuffled her supplies and country outfit into the reading room. She pulled the screen door back. He glanced at her and lifted the phone to his ear. Assuming a fixed position, his quick, deliberate dialing unnerved her. She had responded too fast after she noticed the missing blades, and he slouched as if he were listening for the line. Maddie moved over to the counter and pulled a coffee filter from the upper cabinet shelf. McCabe paced as she placed the filter in the holder. She removed the top of a glass container and scooped up the thick, dark, amaretto blend granules. McCabe spoke loudly. Stan or Winnie, call me on my cell when you get this. She sprinkled coffee granules against the paper filter and, and shoveled the coffee a second time as McCabe hung up the phone. Voicemail? Exactly. They'll call me. Listen, Maddie. He watched as she closed the coffee maker lid and she pushed down the glowing red button. Good, I can use a cup. Listen, I'm going to install that hardware, but I have to get back into town. Maddie nodded, reassured McCabe would feel confident in leaving her out here. The coffee dripped steadily, filling the first floor with a distinct amaretto flavor. She studied the box label she had handwritten in a Phoenix packing store and returned to the kitchen for a knife. She pulled out the paring knife from the sink basin as McCabe opened the screen door and carried a small brown bag in his hand. He opened his eyes and fixated on the knife. Was it something I said? She smiled. No, my boxes. Oh, I got it. He pulled an irregular serrated knife from a hidden leather sheath and sliced open a box. I have canvases in the large... I know. He pierced the blade between the plastic tape and carefully opened a long vertical slit. She held the paring knife as he sliced the perimeter. Your canvases, madam. You like doing things for people, McCabe. She opened the last box as he watched. As she pushed her hand through the newspaper and shaved styrofoam chips, McCabe crossed the kitchen. She fully opened the box. All her paint tubes were there, just as she had packed them in Phoenix. 
McCabe removed another lock from the plastic bubble pack and set it on the table. He walked by her, smiling briefly as he headed for his truck. Maddie lifted the box and carried it to the leaf table. She set it down and removed her paint tubes, lining the green and white label containers up by color. Outside, near the truck, she heard a high-pitched ringing from a cell phone. McCabe pulled the phone from his pocket. As she inched closer to the open door, she felt the fresh air leaking inside, and she heard him talk directly to Simmons. He was asking about the rose, listening, and then questioned the groundskeeper about the mower blades. Then he raised his voice. Well, that's damned impossible, Stan. McCabe turned toward the house, and she retreated to the kitchen table. The cell phone conversation ended. He walked up the stairs and across the porch. He closed the front door once inside the house. Everything arrived safely. Maddie, I uh, just talked to Simmons. He said his wife was called by Rialto and thought the rose would be a nice touch. Maddie's front teeth were pressed firmly as she spoke. John. John called them. I know he did. Just to mess me up. Men never forget being dumped, McCabe. No, they don't. He held a screwdriver, a pair of pliers, and a drill in his hand as he crossed the kitchen. She took the empty carton from the table and set it against the wall. As she hoisted up her easel box, McCabe yanked the delicate black toaster plug and stuck in his three-pronged orange power cord. Before she had placed the easel box on the table, the large drill spun and chewed up the side wood casing. Maddie peeled the tape edge and lifted out parts of her easel wrapped carefully in blue foam, surrounded by more newspaper and soft chips. He banged the hammer abruptly a few times, and then he came back for the deadbolt. Well, I hope this makes you feel safe and secure. Well, leave that in your hands, McCabe. You know what you're doing. He raised his brow and produced a tiny smile. God, help us. I thought you were their master mechanic, she said, taking out the last piece of the easel. Like I said, seriously, no one will get in here. No one will have the remotest possibility of getting in here, Maddie. She removed the blue foam from the wooden lengths. What did he say about the blades? He took them out to be sharpened. McKay pushed the lock into place and began tightening the screws. I heard you say something was impossible. McKay peeked around the corner. He had the same tense look in his eyes when she asked him about being a lawyer in the service. It was impossible for him to have gotten over here without you seeing him. Oh. He tightened the other screws, then shut the cellar door. Maddie heard him twist the brass lock and the heavy bolt pushed into the orifice. He pulled back on the knob. You're golden. She walked across the kitchen and he motioned for her to grab the knob. He stepped back. She gripped the cold metal and shook the door. She nodded. Thank you. I'm going to install some things downstairs around the bulkhead and the windows. Should take about 15 minutes. This place is becoming a fortress. We aim to keep our guests happy. She grinned and went back to the table as he gathered up his tools. He disappeared down the cellar stairs and was there for the longest time. Through the floorboards, the drill spun and bored through the wood. She assembled the easel, stacked her canvases, and arranged her tubes in a specially designed tray attached to the easel. When the phone rang, she dropped a tube of white acrylic on the blue vinyl and stared at the receiver. McCabe pounded with the hammer downstairs as she decided whether to answer the line. She left the tube on the vinyl, headed for the phone, and lifted the receiver. Hello? Yes, is this Maddie Summers? Yes, this is she. Oh, good. I'm Abby Preble. My 
Oh, Mrs. Preble, yes, yes. He mentioned you knew the area around the graveyard near the captain's grave. Ah, a wonderful area for a walk, especially at this time of year. McCabe's drill spun just below her. I was wondering if you'd like to take that walk tomorrow afternoon. Maddie glanced at her supplies and stacked canvases near the bay window. Why, yes, yes, I would enjoy that. Why don't we plan it at one o'clock tomorrow afternoon? We can bring some lunch up there. I look forward to it. Thank you. Bye now. Maddie set down the receiver and crossed her arms as McCabe stood with his hammer near the toaster. McCabe, I thought you were still downstairs. I was. Who was that on the phone? Maddie smiled and crossed the reading room. Oh, Mrs. Preble, she's going to give me that tour of the graveyard area. McCabe nodded and stroked his chin. Listen, I have locks in all the cellar windows and the bulkhead. Maddie stopped near the table. The bulkhead? Are you telling me that bulkhead had no lock? Well, it had a, a wooden latch. So I was out there the other night exposed to the outside? He shook his head as he moved closer. No, there was the latch. Maddie, this is Rexford, Maine. You're not living in the middle of the city or even suburbia. Really, there's no need to worry. Then why are you bolting the place up, McCabe? So you can have some peace of mind. Listen, I don't know what that little jackal of a husband did to you, but I'm sorry. I was out of line. Yeah, you were. Well, you're a bundle of nerves. There was someone out here last night. That bolt was loose. McCabe pressed his lips, swinging the hammer like a pendulum clock keeping the seconds. He closed his eyes momentarily and moved back to the cellar door and then went downstairs. She didn't hear any more work below, and while he was down there, she picked up the paint tube from the floor and held it tightly in her hand. Hey, McCabe! She stepped to the doorway. McCabe carried his tools up the old varnished wood stairs. You're right. I am a bundle of nerves, and my husband deserved what he got. McCabe creased his brow. He was probably afraid to talk about it now and passed into the kitchen. Hey, it's not for me to say. She clasped her fingers onto his flannel shirt and around his tense biceps. He stopped, but looked toward his truck. You feel free to say anything you want. I'm up here to get away from what happened and pick up with my life. She slowly released her grip and he faced her. His deep eyes were even more imposing close up. Then relax. Forget about people breaking into the house. And forget about that son of a bitch you married and start your life now. Have a nice hike with Mrs. Preble. He walked across the kitchen, snatching his denim coat, and he opened the outside door. But he turned before he headed onto the porch and looked at the box from secondhand Annie's. I'll be by here at seven. He closed the inside door and moved onto the porch, back to his truck. Maddie set the tube on the table and shuffled to the window. He was already behind the wheel and checked the rear mirror as he looped around in front of the garage. A dust trail followed the truck past the maintenance shed as it dipped over the maple tree hill. Chapter 12 Maddie positioned her easel in the driveway and sat on a metal kitchen stool. From a rough sketch three hours earlier, she had applied a minimal amount of color to the tilted canvas and captured the yellow leaves, filling the bows, sweeping the left side of the painting. With her perspective accomplished, the porch columns provided a solid foundation to the bedroom dormers, bringing the eye around to the house. Each clapboard fit firmly into the afternoon light, enriching a color mixture, 
corresponding to the pastel clapboards. Adding the cliffs or the bay would skew the perspective and draw the eye away from the century-old house. The sun was ablaze just above the maintenance shed. Maddie set down the wood handle brush on the side tray and pushed down her sleeves as the cooler air brushed against her bare arms. All afternoon as she constructed the painting, she glanced toward the shed and pictured the side window. Although she had seen those blades on the ledge, she chided herself for automatically thinking their absence represented something sinister. McCabe would not have left her alone out here all day if he believed that someone was walking around with two mower blades. She stepped back to view her painting. The house was properly placed and boarded correctly with the maple tree, yet the shadows were inadequate. She had failed to capture the autumn afternoon's variations. Smiling, she crossed her arms and imitated an instructor at the Institute nine years ago. Easily corrected, Maddie. Easily corrected. Adding shadow might be a good project for tomorrow morning. She smiled, raised her hand to her mouth, and inadvertently imagined herself alone with McCabe in the early morning light. She shook her head and looked toward the ground. Too soon, Maddie, too soon. She walked up to the canvas. The painting was not bad. Paintings of old New England houses probably filled the street vendors' bins, yet in Phoenix it would draw attention. She held the stapled canvas, curled her fingers around the support boards, and lifted the painting from the easel. Keeping the canvas away from her shirt, she strolled into the area she had just painted. And then the rotary phone's clarion sounded across the yard. She stopped, opened her mouth, and could almost hear the hiss and distant chimes as she set the painting against a porch support. The second ring penetrated her eardrums. She covered her ears and ran across the wood boards. Most phones had volume controls, but this phone had probably been here since the Second World War. The screen door creaked and she ran into the reading room, determined to catch the phone before the next ring. She leaped, her arm extended, and clutched the receiver. Immediately, popping from an air-operated lug wrench used to change tires, shook the earpiece. Mrs. Summers. Yes. This is Henry Belson. Yes, Mr. Belson. Are you done? No, ma'am. And I'm hoping to have your car ready by tomorrow night. But we need all the pots. That's our problem. Maddie half smiled. Shadows had formed across the kitchen counter. Well, I'm out here to rest and relax and not drive, so whatever you have to do, Mr. Belson. I just wanted you to know the situation. Yes, thank you. Goodbye. The line clicked. On some level, she wanted to keep talking as the isolation so far from town was sometimes unsettling. She held out the receiver, stared at the perforated earpiece, but was happy just to hear the sound of her friendly voice. The wind, ballooning the reading room shears, acquired a hidden meaning. So did the steady ticking of the glass-framed mantel clock. The wind pulled the curtain back against the window screen as if someone were breathing the air in and out of the house. She wandered over to the sofa and stretched her long body over the smooth fabric. In the darkening quietness, she had shed all the technological wonders, even the electric light bulb. Through the rear windows, the red sun behind the tree branches was a reminder of how the day was uncontrollably ending. 
She had no need at this moment to hear the latest video news update. Too much of the outside world had already been stuffed into yesterday's newspaper, now covering the table for her paint tubes. And with the solitude came the little noises, unheard in the bustle of modern living. Insects buzzed and screeched as the clock's pendulum rocked from side to side. With the settling darkness, a variety of birds produced shrill and melodic tones from the wood thickets. She had longed for this simplicity and submission to things beyond her control. Her senses buoyant and alive, she stood and crossed the reading room to the kitchen. She slowly turned the faucet tap. Even the water gushing into the ceramic sink assumed a new clarity. She took a clear glass from the cupboard and let the cold water surge to the top. The wetness satisfied her thirst. She moved toward the white enameled stove, her sneakers squeaking against the vinyl, and she lifted the copper tea kettle toward the sink. Opening the lid, she turned on the faucet again. The cold water pounded against the bottom and splattered upward. She shut off the tap and placed the kettle on the electric coil burner and turned the knob to high. The cabinet shelf over the stove contained a box of raspberry herbal tea she had brought in her suitcase. She glanced back at the phone, opened the cabinet, and the tea's strong flavor surrounded her. Maybe she should call D.R. The lack of modern conveniences up here would astound her friend. As Maddie pulled out a tea bag, she thought how she could describe each yellow maple leaf, every ocean wave breaking over the shore, and even the ugly incinerator at the end of the marshes. She dropped the bag into a tall orange spiraled glass cup on the counter, then checked the kitchen clock above the sink. In Arizona, it was early afternoon, and she needed to call D.R. Maddie left the kettle and exited the kitchen. Once at the small table by the stairs, she lifted up the phone, and as the steady tone buzzed in her ear, she inserted her index finger into the dial. She spun the wheel to the finger stop and let it click back, repeating the procedure, placing her finger at the appropriate numbers. The line connected, clicked, and rang. She smiled, having completed so complex an operation. DR, it's me. Maddie, you sound so far away. I'm hearing you okay on this end. DR, this place is, well, you wouldn't believe it. I'm calling you, overlooking... She spun around and could fully see the cliffs and the bay beyond. I'm overlooking the ocean from the magnificent cliffs. You want a cell phone? Hardly. This phone has been on Earth before we were. I wish you could see the foliage. I've already started a painting of the house. Maddie could hear people talking in the shop. This trip is going to do you a world of good. Get away from John, make a new start. Meet anybody yet? As a matter of fact, I'm going out tonight. A local guy. All right. It's just a country music place called Brisky Whiskies. He asked me and I said, why not? Oh, let them have their privacy. So, some big hotel chain orchestrates all this. Maddie nodded her head as a new flock of geese flew south across the bay. She leaned against the stair spindles and scanned the birches and pines within the brighter foliage outlining the rock cliffs. The Rialto Group. So it's really not an exchange. 
The guy I'm going out with works as the local coordinator. Good looking? Yeah, the strong, silent type. I may get down to that airport and join you. Listen, I've got somebody in the rinse here. Have a good time, Maddie. Let me know how Mr. Strong and Silent treat you. I will. See you, DR. Talking with DR, I charged her up. The water had not come to a full boil yet on the stove as she went back outside to get her easel. At least DR knew she was distancing herself from John. She pushed open the screen door and the chilled air rushing up the cliffs tingled her cheeks. She folded the easel and closed the sketch box. As she picked up her palette and brushes, the phone ring shot through the screen door. She froze and then carried the materials across the porch. Again the phone sounded. With her extended finger, she pulled open the screen door. Across the kitchen, the steam billowed from above the kettle spout. Maddie dumped the palette, brushes, and cups on the table and ran to the reading room. She grabbed the phone and turned. The mantel clock chimed at 5.15, masking the wavy phone signal. Who is this? I demand to know who this is. I'm not going through this again. The tones, melancholy and low, continued, her heart slamming. She pushed the receiver to the phone. The kettle's increasing steam burst to the ceiling as she plowed through the screen door. She sprinted across the dirt drive, grabbed her easel by both wings, and lifted the base from the dirt. The solitary black phone was visible through the reading room's orange leafy reflection. As she dragged the easel onto the porch and moved the casters across the floorboards, the ringing began again. Damn this! She pulled open the door, wedging her jeans against the screen, and swung the easel onto the reading room floor. With the next ring, she tightened her fists and stomped across the room. She swung the receiver to her ear and took a deep breath. I want to know why you are calling me. An automobile passed and continued down an unknown road. She closed her eyes and set down the phone as she thought about leaving it off the hook. The kettle steam swirled onto the ceiling. She stumbled to the kitchen, twisted the burner knob, and then lifted the wooden handle. As she poured the scalding water into the cup, the sweet raspberry filled the air. She set the kettle on the coal burner, and her heart thumped as she leaned against the countertop. The pale curtains glowed in the afternoon sun. Sharper autumn light swept the floorboards and the front rug. But Maddie was drawn to the solid black phone below the white stair spindles. Maybe Preb could either trace the call or stop it altogether. She looped her fingers around the cup's smooth glass handle and closed her eyes. The steamy raspberry entered her sinuses as she cradled the warm cup in her hands. An occasional gust of ocean wind whistled through the window casing, and the drier leaves outside tripped and tumbled over the dirt drive. The phone was a blur when she opened her eyes, but she slowly focused on the dial. Sipping the warm tea, she lowered the cup to the wooden table. Her freshly painted canvas appeared crisper. She walked around the table, took the canvas sides, and set the painting on a varnished captain's chair. But she needed perspective. She stepped back for a better look, crossing her arms as she reached the room. Her original thoughts about the shadows was still correct. When the phone sounded, she flung her arms outward and jumped. Like a soldier in a military parade, she marched toward the phone. This is Maddie Summers. Yeah, this is Daniel McCabe. McCabe, where are you? I'm in my 
my truck and heading away from Belson's. Henry just told me he talked to you. Maddie leaned against the wall, her head resting on the spindles. I so love being marooned out here. I'm now moving at 35 miles an hour past the diner. What is this, a travelogue? She asked, half smiling. Now I've passed the red and white fire hydrant and the storm drain. McCabe. Well, you asked. Is this an example of New England literal sense of humor? You read that in a magazine? Aren't all New Englanders supposed to answer, ah, uh, yeah, ah, uh, nope? She smiled again. Stop it! I suppose you're going home to dress up in your cowboy garb. As a matter of fact, I am, and that's why I'm calling. Just to make sure you haven't chickened out of this. Well, I could. I found a hat for you, <laughs> said McCabe, chuckling. No, no, no. That's going too far. I'll wear the skirt, even though it's a little short. Short skirts are back. Listen, practice your hee-haws, and I'll see if I can rehearse some yumps. Nope. I'll see you at seven, Maddie. Okay, partner. Maddie slowly lowered the phone. While she liked McCabe, she cautioned herself as she retrieved her tea from the table not to get romantically involved with him. Her thoughts wandered, pushed ahead five hours as they returned from brisky whiskeys. It would be easy to let him stay the night. It would be so easy to bring him up the stairs and into her bed. Sending him on his way meant a sleepless night alone, waiting for the phone's ring. She headed to the yellow table radio on the counter and clicked on the switch. As she waited for the tubes to warm, she closed the front door and turned the deadbolt. When the newscaster's voice slowly pierced the hanging silence, she twisted the dial to a Portland classical station. Her intention was to take a long, quiet soak in the upstairs tub while the music played through the house. The phone calls still bothered her. With the teacup in both hands, she walked from the kitchen and stared at the phone as she rounded the stairs. The sun's blaze through the storage room windows upstairs muted the blue walls as she climbed the stair runner. The phone on the small table assumed a larger, exaggerated identity. Sipping the tea, she continued up the runner. Through the bathroom's open doorway, the late afternoon sun scattered across the raised white tub. She spun the hot handle to the right. The faucet burped and an onslaught of water came through the old pipes, spitting and gurgling into the deep ceramic basin. She pushed the rubber stopper in place over the worn chrome drain and twisted the cold water handle. She adjusted the water to a potent warm temperature. On the side table, she had left a box of bath oil beads scented mango. She tilted the open box and sprinkled a few of the orange grains across the torrent producing an instant burst of soapy bubbles near the drain. In the darkened bedroom, she looked up at the clothes box atop the white wicker cabinet near the north window. The leather from the skirt and the boot box saturated the air. She grinned as she removed the red checkered shirt and brown skirt from the other box. John, or even some of her hoity-toity friends, would find this attire quite amusing. D.R. would like it. She spread the blouse and skirt over the poster bed's unfolded quilt and shook her head. Maybe McCabe was right about the housekeeper and the Rialto. With the water running, she casually unbuttoned and removed her flannel shirt. In the walk-in closet next to the bedroom toilet, she pulled down a fluffy white terry cloth towel from the top shelf and placed it on the quilt as she unbuttoned her jeans. The warm bath beckoned as she longed to release the tensions in her life. 
The cool second floor air chilled her skin as she hurried to the bath. She turned both handles in unison, halting the flow. Glancing to the top of the stairs, she lifted her toe over the tub ledge and dipped her foot into the perfectly heated water. She slid her body into the soothing mixture, her neck outlined in bubbles as she inhaled the tropical aromas. The anxiety melted away. She was happy she had traveled to Maine and was alone in a warm bath overlooking magnificent cliffs and blue waters beyond. A piano melody pattered up the stairs as she turned toward the sunlit window. Yellow leaves spread over the wide sloping branches and produced an odd flickering light across the walls. The area around the volleyball net and barbecue darkened as night settled over the main coast. She shook bubble globs from her hands and let her arms rest along the cooler tub ledge. Yesterday's yellow rose brought back her to the expo years ago when she and a group of local artists exhibited their paintings amidst software pushes, cell phone manufacturers, and widescreen TV sellers. The business people thought the artists would humanize the cold business world. She first remembered John Summers flying by her booth, talking on a cell phone, and carrying a laptop under his arm. From those first images, she should have realized what she was getting. He did not visit the booth until supper time, forced to take some time out for dinner and wait for an incoming call. At the time, she thought her work and her personality had captivated him. John never received his incoming call, but being alone in a strange city at the end of the day was status quo. He did not ask her to dinner immediately, but took some time to study her art. Other artists and paintings in the makeshift gallery did not interest him. Over dinner, he stared into her eyes as if he were looking at a goddess. Slightly embarrassed, Maddie talked about art in general and how she had painted at one of the local colleges, but hoped to have her own studio one day. Although he didn't spend the night, he did kiss her and asked her out the next day. A Sunday. She showed him more of her sketches and paintings at the college. They dined on a side street cafe with a yellow rose on the glass table and walked through the park. John had a flight out that evening but promised to call her when he was in his Denver hotel room. She knew something gelled between them, but she doubted a relationship would develop. When he called her four hours later and said he wanted to return to Phoenix the next weekend, she gladly accepted. Maddie shook her head. The piano sonata from the old radio speaker was as if someone were really playing downstairs. She blew bubbles off her arm and stared at the bay's deepening blue line horizon. Somewhere between John's phone call a dozen roses delivered to her apartment, and his arrival that Friday night long ago, Maddie fell in love. She had not wanted to fall in love, but was swept into it by a man who appeared to take an interest in her work and cut back on his own important work to be with her. Courtships are an illusion, she said to the accompaniment of the ascending violins. Through the window, each breaking wave crest white against the deepening blue, seemed to surgically rip open the ocean, exposing the underwater's hidden agenda to a momentary glimpse at the real world. She believed that John may have told the Rialto to send that rose. You play the game so well, John. As the wedding approached, her mother wondered why John was so busy with work. But her father, a traveling military man, still not retired, flew in from Pensacola in full uniform for the ceremony and shelled out twenty-five grand for a high-rise wedding reception and then left. John might as well have gone with him. He worked constantly during the honeymoon in the Caribbean. 
She had wanted to see New England, but his devotion to Harlan Hines and his company moved nonstop to the final blowout back in Phoenix last August. Now she was in New England, massaged by the warm tub waters overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. She should have listened to her heart. Chapter 13 Maddie was unaware the room had darkened so subtly. The tub water, tepid, the bubbles depleted. She had spent the last few minutes making snap judgments about McCabe and why he did not practice law. While she knew something had happened in his life or career, she vowed to keep it out of the evening's conversation. His physical attraction and sense of humor appealed to her, but she also chided herself for thinking about becoming physically involved with him. She did not think he would force himself upon her, but once she stood in the tub, she thought about memorizing the police station number. In the twilight glow surrounding the bath, the water dripped from her sleek body and the cooler air left a goosebump trail over her arms and legs. She pulled the yellow towel off the side table, dried her hair and meticulously absorbed the water off her sweet mango-scented skin. When she stepped onto the finely knitted blue and white mat, she closed her eyes and exhaled. Now she was ready to go out with McCabe, fresh and with no thoughts of John Summers. She lifted her bare feet across the cold tiles and onto the smooth urethane bedroom floor. Turning on the bedroom's hurricane lamp, she again grinned at the country outfit on the quilt and moved over to the bulky cherry bureau. Hanging the towel on the post, she tugged on the shiny brass handle and slid open the heavy top drawer. She reached for a pair of panties. She began to fear, as she buttoned the checkered blouse, John might have come back. But D.R. said yesterday he was in Chicago, and having second thoughts about the marriage breakup would not prompt him to be scaring her up here. Maddie sat at the dresser, carefully applied light blue mascara, and then ran a brush through her short hair. The ubiquitous ticking alarm clock reminded her McCabe would be here in less than a half an hour. But the roses unnerved her. She leaped up and pilfered the dresser drawers high boy in the wicker bureau, but found no roses. She returned to the mirror. Despite her shaking hands, she didn't look half bad in the checkered blouse as she pushed a frosted lipstick tip over her puckered lips. But her eyes moistened, and with each shortened breath, she wondered who was in the house during the past 48 hours. McCabe would have to call Mrs. Simmons when he arrived, and if this woman had not placed the rose in the drawer on the pillow, Maddie would book the first jet out of Portland. She twisted off the bureau light, but left the bedside hurricane lamp glowing as she walked off in her stiff boots across the bathroom tiles. A new piano sonata danced through the darkness. She pushed the hall light switch and went down the stairs, glancing at herself in the dark octagon window. Going outside the house alone was out of the question until she solved the rose problem. In another 20 minutes, McCabe would arrive. Back at the Fairbanks house, the lawnmower blades are missing. The sharp lawnmower blades. Maddie is convinced that someone was outside the house last night. And then it happens. Maddie is shaking when long stem individual roses, her husband John's signature move, begins showing up around the exchange house. Where is McCabe? McCabe is about to arrive in his truck and bring her to country dancing. 
Although she is not totally sure about McCabe, she's going anyway. This is fitting with my boots on and adjusting my Stetson. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.